Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative. It's 18 January, Wednesday afternoon that we're recording. Not sure when you'll be listening. Today we have Christian Vanderpump with us. He's a PhD student at Canterbury University who's doing some really interesting work on building regulations and fire code issues. So this has been a long-standing area of, ish- of interest for us here at the Initiative. We have worried that, well... Some of the issues facing councils and consenting are driven by some of the incentives that they face and then problems in the Building Act wind up contributing to our housing crisis that we just don't get enough houses built and it's just too hard to use foreign building materials. The Commerce Commission had a recent review of this. Their market study also concluded that there seem to be substantial regulatory barriers to entry for newer innovative materials coming in from overseas. Christian's been looking at these rules in New Zealand and Australia and internationally, and will walk us through some of what he's found. So welcome to the show, Christian. Thank you very much for having me, Eric. So first off, how did you get interested in this area and why did you decide to do a thesis in it? Well, I graduated quite some time ago and I started working in New Zealand. And when you work in the country that you're in, you don't really know anything else other than what you work in. And like all Kiwis, I did an OE. I did my first OE in the UK, but I didn't do consulting as I was doing in New Zealand. I did fire investigation and research. And what I noticed when I was doing my fire investigation and research and reporting back to the UK government was that what I was seeing on the fire ground, damage, breaches and the like, didn't marry up at all with the things that consultants were saying was a problem. So I realised there's immediate discord between what consultants hypothetically predict with some of their computer models and the empirical evidence on the ground. So I realized we need to change our thinking on this issue and have a more evidence-based approach. I then did my second OE in the Middle East where it's basically no laws at all. You work to American standards and if the permit authority likes you and you treat them with respect, things will go fairly smoothly. But again, as in New Zealand, as in the UK, as in the Middle East, as in Australia, fire was always the the last bureaucratic barrier to breakthrough. I remember working on the one of my biggest projects, which was uh, I led the Dubai Metro team for fire safety, and the gentleman in charge of the whole Metro project, who's been an engineer for about fifty years, highly respected man, just always said to me, "Wherever I've gone in the world, fire has been the biggest problem." And it was just interesting to hear that from someone I didn't know working in countries other than what I had previously been in. And it was a truthful statement. I then went and worked in Australia for a little while and basically the same thing, different laws, same problems. I then eventually decided to come back to New Zealand after being overseas for quite some time. And I thought this is something that if I can crack this problem, it's going to be a worthwhile exercise because I I like seeing buildings get built. I like things being done on time. I don't like seeing building owners who risk their capital, create jobs for other people to face unnecessary barriers. And they do face unnecessary barriers. So this is something that has actually ended up expanding in terms of understanding the wider regulatory context, because it's all part of the same legal atmosphere. And so that's sort of what's driven me is to 
find some solutions to these problems. Now, you'd written on this initially in the Stuff newspapers on the 20th of December. We'll get a link to this up on our website as part of the podcast. But that is building on your PhD thesis work. And I've had a bit of a look through some of the stuff that you've done on it. I'll look forward to it being available publicly when the time comes for that. You described some of the differences between regimes that are prescriptive about building methods and regimes that are a little bit more flexible in trying to just come to a solution on solving a building problem. Can you describe the two sorts of approaches and differences across Australian states and New Zealand on this? Okay, well, in Australia, each state and territory is uh, responsible for their own building laws because the Australian Constitution, which covers federal issues, doesn't cover building laws. So each state and territory does their own thing. And New Zealand does, does its own thing as well. And since reading a whole pile of legal literature on how to interpret statutory law and the like, which is a whole valuable exercise in itself, the purpose of a building act is to satisfy three things, amenity, health, and safety. Now, I can talk about all three of them, but fire falls into the safety category. And so the building acts right across Australasia just say buildings have got to be safe. And then they specify Basically, who has authority, who does not, what type of procedures must be followed and the like. Because the issue of safety has now been put into the legislation rather than it being a judge-made common law issue. Then at regulation level across Australia and New Zealand, the whole issue is dealt with in different ways. So in some states, you have local councils that are the permit authority. You have some states where the fire brigades are an approvals authority. You have some states where they have private certification, which means you can get a building consent from a private certifier. And then you have permutations of these things where it's sort of quasi-approval roles and the like. But the fundamental issue under building laws is to provide safe buildings. So they've got all of these permutations on how to administer achieving safety. And so the question then became for me, what effect do these laws actually have? Are they actually making people safer because you have monopoly control over the supply of building consents? Are they making buildings safer because, let's say, you alter an existing building? Do you have to upgrade the whole building for fire safety or is just amending or is just upgrading the area under construction good enough? Now, over this performance-based design period, which extends nearly 30 years, there have been over 500,000 structural fires occurred. That's a very healthy statistical database. And whenever there's a fatality, let alone a fire, all fatalities must go through the coroner's office. That's just law. The coroner is part of the judiciary, separated from the rest of the government. They are independent. They establish causation, legal causation. It's not the same as, say, mechanical causation. They have, they have to cover things like who didn't do what they should have done or who did do what they shouldn't have done, but also things like I think there's a deficiency in your laws here as well. And there are 5,000 coroner's reports of public interest, in other words, things that are of importance to pay attention to. So I've gone through all of those coroner's reports and I found that there's no data to show that there's any benefit in over-regulating versus having a, a competitive market on some so, of these things. I guess we'll just pause that for a second. So coming back again, there's lots of different Australian states. A lot of them allow private companies to be issuing the building consent or the final sign-off on it saying that the building meets code. 
New Zealand, that's done just by our building consenting authorities, which are the councils as well as Kanga Ora. There seemed to be no particular difference in the coroners pointing to problems in the building inspections as one of the causes of a fire across the different regimes. You weren't seeing any differences between those, which might suggest that worries about having private certification as compared to council doing the job might be overblown. Is that, is that a good summary? That is a good summary. There are a couple of notable distinctions, but you have to look at coroner's reports with a pinch of salt because they're inquisitorial, not adversarial. And it's the adversarial method of law where the cross-examination comes into play and you find out the senior judges have the final say. So the coroner says, I think this is causation, but in order to uphold it, the people who have the final say on, yes, this is correct, is actually the senior court judges, like the high court judge. And so where there's been a few that say, okay, I think we've got a problem with our construction industry or with private certification or with fire engineers and the like, you look at those reports and they haven't met the threshold of the senior courts. In other words, the coroner has been wrong, and that's not uncommon. It's not dominant, but you have to recognise the limits of the coroner's authority to have a final say, and they don't have that. So I've gone through those as well, and when you go through those... It's generally a clear bill of health. Yes, there are people out there that do things they shouldn't do, but there's no argument to say something like that we need government control over the supply of building consents and other arguments that float around. So looking over hundreds of fires, there didn't seem to be much difference across regimes where you had a private consenting authority that was signing off on the buildings compared to ones like New Zealand, where it's only council that can do this. There was other differences between regimes as well. So in some of them, you're looking at fairly prescriptive standards in how fire safety can be achieved. And in other ones, there were performance-based design issues. You mentioned performance-based design Can you explain briefly what a performance-based design regime is as compared to the more prescriptive regimes? Okay, performance-based design is really the Building Act specifies by building regulations legal thresholds. So they're basically negligence-based thresholds. The building's got to be safe. Consider these factors. Design however you like, so long as you meet that threshold. Prescriptive is just like a cookbook. It's an instruction manual. And if you follow that instruction manual, it is assumed that the building is safe. So one is cookbook. The other is use your imagination. Just do so in a responsible way. And that is the difference between the two. Were there any differences in outcomes then across those two regimes when looking at fire safety? There's no evidence to show that performance-based design is causing a problem. In fact, the opposite shows to be true, and that is that The errors in the prescriptive documents are of the biggest concern. This has happened in the UK, this has happened in Australia, and it has happened in New Zealand. So if I've understood your writing on this correctly, the prescriptive ones can turn into a bit of a tick-boxing exercise where councils are trying to limit their liability rather than looking at the building as a whole and how it's going to perform under different conditions, where the performance-based design alternative can be a bit more cumbersome for the applicant and for councils to figure out what's going on, a bit more costly of a process, and potentially for the council, more liability at stake. I'd understood that there was potential that performance-based design mechanism in New Zealand, but it's not had much uptake. What's been your analysis on this? The reason is basically cost. 
if you want to do a performance-based design, it's available to you. You have to get it approved by the council. The council can justifiably say no, they think it's wrong. They are naturally risk adverse. Leaky building crisis has helped no one. And you're then looking at a determination. A determination is not a fast process. And then the question becomes for the building owner, what's the cheaper option in terms of trade-offs, the prescriptive or the performance-based design plus the time cost, which is a transaction cost. And when you add all of that up, we don't build huge buildings here in New Zealand. Most commercial developments on average are $300,000 exercise on average. And so it's not worth doing, even if you could save $5,000 as an engineer by performance-based design, a one-year time period to do a determination, just not worth it. So it's something that might stack up for a very large project, but I guess it depends on how the costs and risks of that approach scale with the complexity of the building. Even then, in my own personal experience, it is avoided because you're still looking at potential delays of maybe a year or more. Some determinations have taken one and a half, two years. It's going more slowly than it should be in my view, but that's just the way the market is looking at it, understandably, by my observation. One of the problems that you point to in prescriptive solutions for building challenges is that when different councils or different jurisdictions come up with different standard approaches for these, it forms a bit of a barrier to entry where construction companies that otherwise might deliver a standards kind of building across lots of different places would have to reformulate that building to meet the needs of different markets. How substantial has that been in practice? It's a massive barrier, but the barrier I view it as is, well, if you have a fully functioning performance-based design market, the prescriptive cookbook rules just wouldn't be a problem. And I've worked in Australia where performance-based design operates in states where we have private building certifiers. And if you know your stuff, you're probably not going to have a problem. So the point that I'm trying to make with all my research is, well, you can keep updating and having equivalency and all the rest of it with all these prescriptive instruments, but they will never hold a candle to the innovative capacity of a competitive market. I like some aspects of the American federal system. I like to see these sort of little laboratories of innovation. And if you've got lots of innovation happening, even down to the county level, maybe they all learn from each other, come up with better ways of doing things and all iterate towards best practice solutions. It seemed instead, at least when it comes to building code issues, that privileges local companies that will build to local spec, makes it hard for outsiders to come in and put up buildings to the required standards there because you have to learn how to get things done regulatorily in that place rather than just showing that your building suits the needs, is able to solve the problems that buildings have. They're not that different across places. So these sorts of barriers to entry wind up making the construction sector and then the material sector as well a lot less competitive than it should be. Yes, um, I would agree with that. And when we when you do a comparison between, say, how judges have been ruling on the issue of harm and damage over the centuries, they come up with very elegant negligence-based principles that you could summarise in a paragraph for covering basically everything. And yet here we are, all these centuries later, ignoring those beautiful statements and having thousands of pages of cookbooks to try and cover every permutation. It's just the more you throw at it, the bigger the bonfire gets. So it's a time to, in my view, scale back and go back to thresholds 
with a regulatory environment that embraces those thresholds rather than expand the ever-growing level of compliance instruments and the like. The Commerce Commission's market study on these problems had noted that it's really regulatorily difficult for newer innovative materials to get into the New Zealand market. They made some mention of the liability regime. I put a bit more emphasis on it than they do, but they'd seem to see it as kind of a political non-starter. But they were highlighting the difficulties of getting these materials in. I suppose that like I, I have advocated a shift getting councils out of joint and several liability and just leaving them proportionately liable for if they were actually grossly negligent, leave them liable for their share of it, but don't leave them holding the bag for everybody else's failures under joint and several. I suppose another way of handling the problem would be shifting to these performance-based standards that would also have the effect of opening up markets to new and different materials. I have we've got a challenge Please. position that some people some people take on joint and several liability being a barrier. And this is after going through an awful lot of case law in both Australia and New Zealand and when judges throw the book at people and, and make them pay a lot of money. The issue for me as I look for these things and it's come to my, my mind is, okay, put the liability standard away. Will insurers come into a market whereby damage is very rare or very low. That's not likely to be a problem for them. Insurers are walked away in New Zealand because of the leaky building crisis. They are now walking away in Australia where they have proportionate liability. So we've got two different liability standards, two different social experiments happening. And from both situations, they're now saying, I'm not insuring this market. And for instance, the New South Wales government has had to change their building act to allow certifiers to insure under certain circumstances and they can't actually offer insurance to the building owner. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking your insurance companies, and I've actually spoken to some fairly so high people. Just, just to pause you for one second, if I could, for clarification, this is insurance for the consenting authority against failures, not for the building owner against, in, in case of the buildings falling apart. Yes, that is correct. And the reasons that they're walking away, once there's a systemic problem in a market, because insurance policies are renewed every year, they have the right to just say, sorry, we're walking away from this year's contract, we're not coming back. And the errors that are occurring that is resulting in this problem are errors in these compliance, prescriptive compliance documents. The, the Swiss Rees, the Lloyds of London, the Munich Rees, I suspect it's what's going on behind the scenes. They see all these claims come in and they say, okay, turn off the tap in this sector of the market. So my thoughts on now on this is, well, they're walking away because there's high levels of damage. So let's get the damage down to make it an attractive market to insure in the first place. You'd want the damage to reflect actual damage though, right? So one way of bringing the damage down was sort of capped liability. So even if you've caused a million dollars worth of harm, you're only allowed to sue for up to $10. I worry about the incentives effects of that kind of a regime. The other way is to have better building methods such that the likelihood of failure is lower and that the costs of fixing things are again lower. So one of the problems that we've had in New Zealand as I've understood it Councils can be liable for the cost, even if you've engaged in material substitution. So if you can't source a bit of drywall for one person, you've sourced it from somebody else instead. And if you've engaged in that kind of a substitution and council signs off on it, they can wind up being liable for 
taking the building apart to change that bit of kit, right? Mm. So shifting to a standard that allows some of those substitutions more easily, like the kinds of methods that you've talked about, would reduce the amount of liability so that would reduce the risk again that way, right? Well, it, for me, it comes back to if the product's going to work, why not use it? So I don't have a problem with product substitution. Yeah. The issue that I'm finding when I go through the case law is that the there is a failure to understand in the market, in the private sector, probably more than the public sector, but to be honest, understand how liability works and how to minimise it. And so we're getting decisions made on the, in, on the engineering floor without realising this is a trigger don't pull it and understand the substantive qualities behind any compliance document, whatever it may be, because substitution is fine if you don't cause harm. Even if there's errors in these compliance documents or in the regulations, it all goes back up to the act. A judge is going to throw a case out if you've used a different material, but it performs the same function and it causes no damage. There is no case there. There is no damage. There is no liability. So that's another pattern that I'm observing in this, in, in, in what I'm finding. In our last couple of minutes that we've got, tell me a little bit more about performance-based design and some of the challenges it's been facing in other markets. Well, Australia has been one of the pioneers of performance-based design. And over the years, things have been going not as good as they could, but far better than New Zealand. And they had a across tower fire in 2014. And plus Grenfell, and there's been a whole pile of investigations over there, and none of them have really hit the mark because at the end of the day, the causation was almost identical to Grenfell. Don't put combustible cladding on the building, you won't have a problem. Instead, they brought in a report, and they're basically bureaucratizing the process to paralysis. I've had a number of people contact me asking what to do about it. And the market for performance-based design in Australia is, by my observation, starting to collapse and a similar situation in the UK, where despite the Royal Commission finding that cladding was the problem, don't put combustible cladding on outside, they're now starting to do things like extra stairs and sprinkler systems and things like that. Nothing to do with legal causation, which is the relevant factor in all of this. Yeah, it's sort of a typical solution where you just layer on more regs trying to fix the old problem rather than addressing the underlying causes. It's a nightmare. Thank you so much, Christian. I'll look forward to seeing your papers published and good luck through the rest of your thesis. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. This has been the New Zealand Initiative podcast. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned. Stay tuned.